We'll turn to the book of, wow, I feel loud. Turn to the book of Job, chapter 34 this morning. Job 34. I will ask, do I seem inordinately loud to any of you? Is it too loud? Are you okay? You're fine? Oh, okay. All right. Good. Work. Doesn't want to work. We're going to make it work. Oh, there it is. Ta-da! Magic. As if by magic, also known as the technical expertise that I do not have. <clears throat> so there's different kinds of suffering, and I was reminded of that last night. Um, my sports-loving 12-year-old uh, had a mild concussion playing uh, football with some friends yesterday. Uh, we didn't know that. We discovered that late in the evening. So we ended up at the children's ER downtown. He's fine. He's fine. Um, he, he, he's got a hard head just like his father. He's fine. But we're down there, and, there's, and I was just reminded of the different kind of suffering. We're sitting next to this couple, and their little baby is, she, she, she's tiny. She's got to be uh, six months or younger, maybe, maybe, maybe eight months, but no, definitely not older than that. Uh, and at inter intermittent point, she'd just start crying, and uh, she just looked sick. She looked like she didn't feel well at all. And, and I'm looking over there, and I'm by no means a baby whisperer. I'm by no means a baby expert. Um, I did, uh, my, my mom had children later as I was older, and so uh, my one brother, I'm 12 years old, and then my other brother, I'm 18 years older than, so I've spent a lot of time with babies, even at our home, and uh, we've had three. And the nurse came out and was taking the baby's vitals, and they were asking why they brought her in, and um, it was so just doing all that right there. Uh, in, in the lobby. <laughs> uh, it was packed last night. And this baby is bundled up as much as you could bundle a baby up. I mean, she's got full-on sweater, sweatpants, right? And they brought her in because she was running a fever. And I'm like, if my kid had a fever of 102, they'd be stripped down to a diaper, right? Like, like you, don't, you don't bundle them up more. And the nurse is immediately like, let's start taking these things off. And I just pitied them and, and, and in a not totally non-judgmental way. They're brand new parents, right? Like, we've all been there. I, my biggest fear when, when we had children is I'd break them somehow. And your, your heart just went out and you could just see the fear on their faces and the concern. And, and there, was a, there would have been a significant language barrier there. They were, they were Chinese and it was very clear that they couldn't speak much English. But, but there was, they were suffering. The baby was suffering. But then there was another boy sitting there, and I'm going to guess he was 14, 15, and he was there because he wasn't feeling well either. And I noticed his grandmother was not showing much compassion to him at all, and, and that was disturbing to watch. And, and she was also one of those ladies that liked to have every conversation on her phone at full volume in public with everybody, right? So we're all joining her conversation. And pretty quickly, I realized why she was struggling having compassion. See, he was there because he had thrown up, because he had eaten an entire box of honey buns. The whole box. She kept emphasizing to his mother, the entire box of honey buns. And so he was not feeling well. And as she's like yelling at the phone, looking at him, I mean, this kid is in the zone. He is not making eye contact, right? He had already caught the lightning. He didn't want any more. And I quickly realized his suffering <laughs> is not the same as the little baby's suffering. And, and he's going to be okay. And they were then waiting for x-rays for him. And apparently they'd already been there several hours. I know that because we were there just waiting for two hours to, to see somebody. There's different kinds of suffering. There's different levels, categories. We all get that. Job's suffering is so extreme. Uh, it is the suffering of a health crisis. It is the suffering of a financial crisis. It's also suffering of relational loss, death and brokenness, betrayal by friends, abandonment by people that he's cared for. I mean, it is so, there's such a totality to Job's suffering that it speaks into anyone's suffering. It's so, there's such an extremity to his suffering that it's, it's hard for us because we see how deep it is. Uh, 
And in the midst of all this, Elihu shows up. And he actually starts and the other friends corrected him. Condemning, he's not being mean, but but nonetheless, he's pushing back on Job. And I think that's really hard. The last thing in the world I would have done with those parents, with the, the baby just swallowed so tight, is communicate in any way condemnation. And the nurse did a really wonderful job of saying, well, let's just make sure she's comfortable without any condemning whatsoever. They just wanted their baby to be okay. And so I think one of the things that's hard for us when we come to these chapters in Job with, with Elihu is wrapping our minds around that there comes a point and there are times when it is appropriate and it's loving to offer correction to people that are even suffering deeply. And I think that alone is hard for us. Um, none of us wants to be that person. And yet Job desperately needs it. Job engages with it and it's helpful to him. Coming into the of someone that's suffering in a way that speaks truth that points their hearts back to God is something we're all called to do and so we find ourselves this morning in Job 34 and Job 35 and and what Job is teaching us this morning is this I believe stewarding suffering requires truth affirmations to deal with our questions and our accusations and what I mean by stewarding is to understand that suffering for any of us, whether it's mild, whether it's self-induced, eating a whole box of honey buns, <laughs> or whether it's beyond our control, whether it's as extreme as Job's, somewhat less than Job's, but extreme in our hearts, that, that it's a stewardship, it's an opportunity. Tim Keller has some wonderful resources on suffering, and he himself knows suffering intimately. Um, both as a husband with a wife who had significant illness, uh, as a pastor he wanted to resign at, at certain points and experience what he perceived as failure, and then wrestling with pancreatic cancer. And so he's not a guy that's immune to suffering, and yet Tim Keller views his own suffering as normative suffering, the kind of suffering any person runs into, certainly not as extreme as Job. And he, in his books, even helps us to understand and realize suffering is an opportunity to steward. Whenever you think about stewardship, uh, it's a limited commodity. Time. You steward time. You only have so much time. You can't make more time. You can't go back in time. You can't create more time. You can't, you can't buy time. When the Bible even says redeem the time, it's talking about being a wise steward of that time. Use it rightly. Money. It's a limited commodity. Nobody in here is, is Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, right? Like Jeff Bezos. None of us, we all have limited money. Every one of us. And, and so you have to steward your money. None of us have all the gifts, the spiritual gifts. So we need to steward them. We're limited our gifting and, and our abilities. Um, we have to steward our life, our health, the limited commodities. Suffering, suffering is something to be stewarded. This season will pass. Now, now I, I, I'll be very honest. The passing of the season of your suffering may be entering into eternity. Uh, I'm not the kind of guy that's just going to blow smoke at you. But even then, it will pass. This is limited. It's a limited commodity we need to steward. And the world doesn't understand that. Secular culture doesn't understand that. And because secular culture doesn't understand it, many Christians don't understand it because we swim in this culture. It's like asking the fish what the water's like. And so we tend to think about suffering the way our culture thinks about suffering, and that's not at all how the Bible talks about suffering. I love this quote by Matt Smethurst. In a secular view, suffering can have no meaning at all. It can't be a chapter in your life story. It is just the interruption or even the end of your life story. In other words, the meaning in life in the secular culture is being free to do or choose whatever you want to do that will make you happy. In our secular culture, happiness is what gives life meaning. So if I'm not happy 
My life has no meaning. I need to do whatever I need to do to be happy. Then my life will have value and will feel fulfilled and I'll have meaning. And actually, then that's actually what God's on mission for me too, as well. That's why many theological heresies out there. It's why we have to be very careful, honestly, as American Christians, because our culture, our culture, and I'm not bashing this, but our culture was founded on what? Life. Liberty and the what? Pursuit of happiness. Now, in one sense, I believe everyone should have the. You can't. You can't steward life without that freedom. Like it's. It's really hard to steward life if somebody's always saying, "Well, you, your time is all mine. Your money is all mine." Like I get that, but but if it infects us to the point that we begin thinking that really is what gives my life meaning, me being happy. What do we do when we suffer? And it's either. So I rip my teeth and get through. Or my life's over now. I'm now defined by this. This is my identity. And I wait till I die. And that's not at all the biblical perspective. And the Bible is calling us to have a transformed mindset. To think about suffering in a different way. And Job is a righteous man. He's a godly man. But hear me now. He has been drift in how he's thinking about his suffering and where he's begun to drift to is exactly where we so often drift to in our secular culture and it's viewed as an interruption or the end of my life rather than something to steward and so god kindly sends elihu and elihu comes along and for about five chapters corrects confronts everybody around job but job in particular God is going to show up on the scene and speak directly. And then we're going to see ultimately responses towards the end of the book. I think, I think, I'm not promising you because you'll call me a liar otherwise. I don't think you accuse me that harshly. But I think we'll wrap up Job before Thanksgiving. That's what we have ahead of us. But, but we want to spend time with our good friend Elihu this morning. So let's think of it this way. Let's think of them as a teacher and a student. I'm not going to rehash all that we covered last week. If you missed last week talking about who Elihu was and why we see him the way we do, I strongly encourage you to go back to that. Um, I can email you notes if you need or if you have time. Uh, you can listen uh, on, I think you can still find it on podcasts and then certainly on YouTube or Facebook. But let's talk a little bit about Elihu the teacher. Elihu is a worthy teacher. He's centered on the glory of God and he's dealing with Job ultimately in a way that's helpful. Elihu doesn't take Job's questions personally. He doesn't view Job's statements as a personal attack like the other three guys do. But he's burdened because he's seen that Job has begun to drift from his truth. The Job at the start of the book who said things like, naked I came from the womb, naked I'll return, how blessed be the name of the Lord, though he slays me, yet will I serve him. Like these kinds of things that Job is saying, he's begun to drift from them. He hasn't abandoned them in totality, but he's drifting. The other friends see Job's suffering as his fault. He did something, some unseen sin, and they've imagined all kinds of unseen sins, uh, of stealing, of embezzlement, of abusing widows and orphans, of abusing the poor and afflicted. They, they don't know any of this. They don't have any factual evidence, but they've imagined this for Job. Job. Elihu doesn't ever relate to Job that way, and in fact, he relates to Job as a righteous man, but what he's dealing with is how he's responding to his suffering. He believes that Job has begun to sin a bit and he needs some help. And so he sees and he hears Job, and, and there's a couple ways that we can see this. First, Elihu does not bring up Job's past sins and imagine terrible things. Instead, he focuses on all the things Job has said. And so as we actually will work our way through chapter 34 and into chapter 35, we'll see this in a number of spots. In 34.5, he's actually quoting Job. In 34.6, he's quoting Job or referencing what Job said. In 34.9, same way. In 34.11, and so what Elihu is demonstrating, and some of these go all the way back, right? To I, I think the earliest one is chapter 9, one of the early statements of Job. Elihu is saying, I believe you, Job. I believe you. I get it. I don't, I don't doubt that you didn't do anything to deserve this. What I'm dealing with is what you, how you're responding to what you're dealing with. So Job is sitting there saying, why is this happening? Why is this, why is this happening? I'm righteous. I haven't done anything to deserve this. Elias, Bildad, and Zophar are saying, yes, you did. We just don't know what it is. 
You clearly did something for God to kill all ten of your kids. That's your fault. It's on you, Job. If you hadn't done whatever X is, your children would be dead. You wouldn't be sitting here in boils. You wouldn't have lost all of your resources. Elihu's not focused on that. Elihu comes into Job's life, and we even saw this a couple chapters ago, believing that Job didn't do anything to deserve this, but saying, but Job, how you're responding now is a problem. And I still want to contend that's a hard thing to say to somebody. It's a needful thing. But that's a hard thing to say. And so he's not ignoring Job. And by quoting him and referencing what Job is saying, he's not using his words against him, but he is demonstrating that he's listened to him. Friends don't have time to listen to Job. When they listen to Job, it just makes them angrier. Elihu has continued to process. We saw last week, he even invited Job to respond and have a conversation about it. Elihu is not intending for this just to be a one-way lecture. And so he's demonstrating that he has heard Job. I just want to remind you, when you sit with the grieving and the suffering, listen to them. Hear them. Be very slow to speak. And very quick to hear. Make sure you process and understand the things that they're saying. Ask them confirming questions. Now, I heard you say this. Is this what you meant? I heard you say this. Can, can you help me understand that more? I'm not sure I get what See them as a person, not just a problem. Elihu did all this, and, and we saw that last week. But then secondarily, Elihu really isn't condemning Job. I, it was one of those, I'm studying it this week, and I'm like, oh, this is so beautiful. You can correct someone without condemning someone, right? I think so. Right? If my, if my child comes in, they've done something wrong, I can correct them without condemning them. They're not the same. So it's unhelpful in my my. ESV, that literally the headline 35 is Elihu condemns Job. Like, no, not quite. Not if you study the text. He doesn't really condemn him. He doesn't say that Job himself is wicked, but he says Job is talking like wicked people. Now, you might say, well, that, that's a fine line you're cutting. It is, but it's important. Saying, Job, right now you sound like people who don't believe in God when you say those things. That is very, very different from saying, Job, you clearly don't believe in God and you're wicked. They're radically different. You're talking to someone who's suffering and grieving. And they're asking questions and they're struggling. And one of the things we've learned from Job is where they are in the struggle is not, is not where they're going to end up if they know and love God. And hearing them and responding to them in a right way, in a patient way, in a forbearing way, in a forgiving way, in a loving way, in a trusting way, in a believing way is so important. And this is what Elihu is doing. You can see it in 34.8. And, and so the first time, we'll start reading text in a longer section in a moment. But, but when he references Job in 34.7 and 8, he says it this way, What man is like Job who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers, walks with wicked men? What he's saying, and the language is almost identical when Job talks to his wife earlier in the book, and he says, you sound like a foolish woman. You're saying the same kind of things that people who don't believe in God say. That's not the same as saying you don't believe in God. One gives space for repentance. One condemns completely. He does it again in 34, 36. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. He adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Those are harsh things. And, and if you're hearing those and you're thinking those are really harsh, hang on because we'll see later why they're so important. He focuses again on what Job says in verse 16 of chapter 35. Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. Elihu sees Job as a godly person who has begun to sin in their suffering. Have you ever sinned in your suffering? I have. Absolutely. And I don't say that without shame, but, but just in honesty. I remember talking about something with my wife years ago. 
some complaint I had over a suffering. And I was, I was angry. I was mad about it. And I'll never forget, she, she said to me, she said, you know, your real problem here is with God. Like, nobody else can fix this. You have a, like, you have a God problem right now. And she was right. I wanted to blame everybody else, but my real beef was with God. And at the core of it, my accusation in my heart was God must not love me to have this going on. That's a sinful accusation against the character of God. And I needed that pushback. We as Christians sin. And we can sin in our suffering. And it's really hard because we're going to give so much compassion to someone that's suffering. And we want to be so patient with them. We want to be so forbearing with them. We want to deal so kindly with them. But even look in the New Testament, how many times when Jesus goes to heal somebody, and the most important part is not healing a lame hand or the fact that they can't walk or the fact that they have leprosy, but the fact that they need salvation. And he deals with it. He deals with their soul even as he's dealing with their suffering. And so we see Elihu, the teacher, but we also see Job, the student. And so we need to understand what is it that Elihu is working with. It's important for teachers to understand and to know their students. It's important to speak to the audience in front of you. I want to preach to this church, not some other mystical church or not some crowd out there, but, but you need whatever, whatever your hearts need, whatever my heart needs from God's Word. And so you need to know your student. You need to know what's going on. Job has started with very serious questions. And they're legitimate questions. Job has been asking, and we've been seeing this all the way through the book, why isn't God explaining why this is happening? It's like the heavens are silent, and the only people he has to hear from are people that have had demonic visions, who have a warped theology, and who condemn him. But he hasn't heard kindness and mercy and grace. He hasn't heard loving truth. He hasn't heard, he hasn't been heard. And so he has this question, why does it seem like God is not explaining why this is happening. Do you ever have those why questions when you're so I think everybody does. I don't know somebody that doesn't ask the why quite why is this happening? It's the right? it's it's the Rabbi Kushner book, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? New York Times bestseller many times over. Why is this happening? And Job's wondering why is this happening? Why isn't God telling me? And he moves from that. How is this fair when I haven't been unrighteous? God why have I done wrong? So because there's no answer to the why, Job's assumption would normally be, you know, do good, get good, do bad, get bad. I must have done something bad. But I know I didn't do anything bad to deserve this. So how is this fair? And then, and then lastly, does God even care if I love him, if I'm holy, if I'm righteous, if I obey him? Does God even care? And, and Job's looking around and he sees how the wicked are prospering. Frankly, he's sitting there with his three friends in front of him, these terrible accusers, and, and he sees their prosperity. And, and they're sinful, and they're, they're wicked even what they're doing to him. But they're not suffering boils. Nobody's abandoned them. They haven't lost everything. So why, does the God, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Does God even care if we follow him? These are questions. These are questions that Job has. These are questions we've seen through the book. The problem is Job has begun to make these into accusations. God is silent. He doesn't love me. God, God is unjust. It's not just that this is unfair. God must be unjust. He gives no, there's no, there can be no other answer. And Job's even scared to say that. And, and we saw some of those as he talked to his friends earlier where his reference is, I wish I could bring God into a courtroom and we could have a conversation about it because this, God is being unjust. But, but I know he's just, but this, he is unjust in this. He's wrong. It's better to be wicked because delighting in God gets you nothing. Several things have contributed to Job moving from questions to accusations. He's had terrible theology presented to him and affirmed to him. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. That's the problem. Well, the, the, the struggle is if that's your equation, but the good are receiving bad, what are you left with? Well, his friends are left with, you're a liar. Job knows the truth of his heart. He didn't deserve this. So he's left with now accusing God never realizing his theology is what's broken. Job hasn't clung to truths that he really knows. 
God really is loving and God is merciful and God is kind and God is just. He's begun to drift from those. He's become overwhelmed by his sorrow. He's taken his eyes off of God and he's fixated his gaze on his suffering. His focus has become his hurt rather than his help. There's no space for him in undeserved but purposeful suffering. How can we tell if our accusations are legitimate, or, or excuse me, how can we tell when our legitimate questions have become accusations? How do we know when we've crossed that threshold? And I would, I would say to you this way, when we have begun to deny the truth about God's character, our questions, our questions have become sinful. When we deny the truth about His character. There's so much that, you know, if you go to Bible college seminary that they pound into you and you memorize kings and you memorize systems and you study all these books and it's wonderful. One of the most important things I'm pretty sure my mic just went out. It keeps going in and out. Can we just switch to the pole? If you want to understand love, don't start with how you think about love. Start with God. Don't define God's love by your comprehension of love. If you want to understand humanity, don't start with humanity. Start with the reality of God because we're made in his image. Always begin with God. What the word says about who God is, what God does, how God functions, how God thinks, how God operates. Study, go deep, press deeper and further into God. And let that define everything else. Because the problem is the secular world starts with how they feel, how they think, how they reason, and then try to approach God, and it's a fool's errand, and you never get there, and you end up with warped theology. And what Job has begun to do is he's begun to define now God through the lenses of his suffering and his misery, rather than saying, no, I'm going to look at my misery through the lenses of who God is. When you and I begin to go from legitimate questions, why is this happening is not the problem. Why is this happening is saying, I don't understand. Why is this happening is I'm confused. Why is this happening is, is, is a declaration that you need an outside authority to speak in your life. However, and you can maintain a question mark at the end of it. Why is a good God doing this to me? Still can be legitimate, but it's beginning to become a potential accusation. God is doing this to me because he doesn't love me. God is doing this because he's not powerful. God is doing this because he's not in control. God is doing this because he's not holy. God is doing this because he's not glorious. Uh, there is no God. When our questions begin to deny the truth that the word tells us about his character, they have become sinful accusations. And unfortunately, that's where Job has gone. Job, whom we've come to love, Job, whom we've come to appreciate, Job, whom we value so deeply, Job has begun to drift. And so there are three questions. There are those three questions that, that Job has. Why is God silent? We actually saw how Elihu answered that last week. 34 and 35 are the answer to the other two questions about the justice of God and what's the point of delighting in him. And so let's look at the just nature of God, and that's really going to be chapter 34. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 34, let me just begin in verse 1. I'm going to read down through the first several verses, and we know from the pronouns that, Job, that Elihu is actually addressing Job's friends and the rest of the crowd there. This is what he says. Elihu answered, said, Hear my words, you wise men, give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes, tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. Just want to pause there. That is Elihu's way of saying you're going to need to chew on this for a minute. In other words, what I'm about to tell you, there's some depth to it. There's truth to it. It's hard to handle. This is difficult to process. You need to chew on it a bit. Remember that first time you had your baby and you gave him real food? And it's really like playing catch, right? You have the spoon, you put it in, half of it comes out, scoop the spoon, put it back in, that whole little game. And it's fun giving them different foods. And some of the foods are like, ah. They're so new, though, they think, they think you know, mashed peas are amazing. And you always start with the green stuff before you give them the orange stuff because the orange stuff's sweet and tastes good. You got to start with the green beans and the peas before you ever get to the sweet potatoes. Trust me. You start with sweet potatoes, you ain't never getting peas down the gullet. They done learn better. And so, and so it's hard to process. And so they, they chew on it and they figure it out. And, and they're trying to work their way through it. 
Elihu knows this is going to be some stuff for you to marinate on. You need to meditate on it. You're going to chew on this a bit. That's what he's saying. Verse 5, for Job has said, I'm in the right and God has taken away my right. And so he's saying that Job's claim is I'm just and God is unjust. That's what that means. In spite of my right, I'm counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. These are all quotes of Job's. Elihu isn't manufacturing this. These are things Job has said. What man is like Job who drinks up scoffing like water? In other words, that, that means he, it, it's one of two turns of a phrase in the Hebrew. It's either that he is taking what all the other scoffers have said about God, and he's internalizing it, and now he's saying it, or that he has resisted any of the rebukes. Now, because Elihu is opposed to the rebukes Job has gotten, I don't think that's what it is. This is another poetic way of Elihu saying that Job has begun to ask this in the midst of his suffering, I wonder if all these people who hate God are right. You ever had that thought? It's funny, working with teenagers for so many years in a church context, I started to throw out there, have you ever questioned the existence of God when I was talking to teens? Because invariably, there'd always be some that come, and it's like secret. Oh, uh, yeah. And the normative flow of life, they're raised in church, that's all they hear is church, that's all they hear is, is this, they're indoctrinated, and I'll be honest with you, I have no problem indoctrinating children teenagers with, with the gospel. There's no shame in my game because it's the truth. But there comes a point for many, not all, for many that they begin to quit. Is this true? How do I know that this is true? And we're unkind and ungracious if we don't give enough space for them to actually express that they're struggling with that to help walk them through what is the Christian answer to it, right? And, and so in their midst, they're asking, could these other people be right? Job is asking, could these other people be right? I bet you've thought that before. I bet if you've ever suffered for righteousness sake, if you've ever done what's right and somebody smacked you for it, you ever had that? You do what's right, you say what's right, you, you were loving, you were truthful, you were kind, you were gracious, and bam, you got punished for it. And then there's all these other people over here that they ain't got the guts or the courage or the walk with Jesus to do or say what's right or hard, and they're not suffering. You ever been tempted to think, man, maybe they, they, they got the better path. Maybe I'm the one that's wrong. I mean, look, following Jesus got 11 of the 12 disciples killed. Maybe it's a me problem. This is, what, this is what he's saying with us. Verse 8, who travels in company with evildoers, walks with wicked men. He's saying, Job, the stuff that's coming out of you is the thing that these wicked people say. For he has said, and this is question one, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. He's actually going to deal with that in chapter 35, but that's this question, this accusation. It's pointless to follow God. What's pointless about it? Rewind, start a sermon, because following God hasn't made me happy. That's why. I'm not happy, and I want to be happy, and I can draw a direct line between my unhappiness and obeying God. And then I look and see all these other people who are not obeying God in this way, and they are happier. The problem is following God in that way makes me sad, angry, depressed, discouraged, anxious. So the answer is don't follow God that way. That's the contention he'll deal with in the next chapter. We'll hit there a little bit in the sermon. Verse 10, Therefore hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. That's really addressing Job's other question. Is he just? Is God really just? And so the whole rest of chapter 34 is dealing with it. And here are his answers. First of all, yes, God is just because God is God. <laughs> That's one of the most unsatisfying answers you can ever give to somebody, right? Is God just? Yes, God is just because God is God. They're like, what does that even mean? It's like, is that judge just? Yes, because he's the judge. And immediately... Even put in that term, you begin to understand what the real problem is. So if we say God is just because God is God, we're like, well, that doesn't make sense. That's not what I'm asking. Well, actually it is. Because if we looked at a human judge and you said, I have a court case and it's before Judge Smith. And somebody said, well, is Judge Smith just? 
and you said, well, Judge Smith is just because he's the judge, you would say, no, I'm asking about his character. I'm asking about his track record. I'm asking about his logic. That's why when we say God is just because God is God, our answer is this, really. He is just because he is holy, he is perfect, he is loving, he is true. It is a question about his nature. And so the best answer Elihu can give is, God is just, no matter what Job has said, no matter what Job is experiencing, God is just and he's still on the throne because he is God. And so we'll follow his argument here, verses 10 down through 17. Therefore hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness, from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man he will repay him, and according to his ways he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth? Who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Now, Psalm 115 helps us. Because I just, I want to acknowledge again, to say God is just because God is God feels an awful lot like telling a teenager because I said so. That works when they're three. Starts to wear off around 10, 11. By 13 and older, it's not that you can never look at your kid and say, because I said so. Because frankly, that's some of life and we all need to hear that, even at 48. You know, if I'm speeding and a cop pulls me over, why'd you pull me over and not that other guy? Because I chose to. You know, it's not the time for debate. It's the time to say, I'm sorry, officer, please don't write me a ticket. But as they get older, we do need to start, and it helps them to explain, because it actually helps them to be discerning. And so to look at somebody and say, God is just because God is God, I know it feels and it sounds an awful lot like that. Well, because I said so. Well, Psalm 115 really helps us here. Psalm 115.3 really answers and says, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. So whatever God says is right is what's right. He's the God in heaven. And why this works, that he does whatever he wants to do, the psalmist goes on to explain, because God is contrasted with all of our idols. These idols can't see, they can't speak, they can't hear, they don't have hands, they don't have feet. I don't know if you've watched some of the latest documentaries uh, the Amazon has a, a movie made on it, 13 Lives, about the Thai soccer team that was trapped in the caves. It's wonderful. It's, it's amazing. But one of the things that's disturbing is they keep praying to this goddess of the mountain, hoping she's going to rescue their children. And they're afraid that the rains and the floods that are filling the cave is her tears because she's mad about something. And you're just watching them pray and, and, and light candles to this, this statue. And you're like, what? This is not going to do anything for you. And the psalmist is saying, it's fascinating because he says, God is God, so God does whatever he wants to do because he's God. And it's so contrasting because none of your idols can help you. What the psalmist is saying is a God you can control is no God at all. And actually, that's exactly what suffering people need to hear. Because if suffering tells you anything, it's this. You're not in control. You can't fix it. Job can't fix it. When we're suffering, we become aware that we need someone, something bigger than me, stronger than me, wiser than me. And yet it's terrifying because it also means we can't control a God who's bigger, stronger, smarter than I am. Not like an idol. A sufferer knows this intuitively. It's actually one of the gifts of grief. You need someone bigger you need God. But Elihu knows that unless God can be trusted to be just, he's no help to you either. He's burdened that Job returned to what Job already knows to be true about God. He puts his justice on display. God doesn't play favorites, is what he's saying in verses 18 through 20. doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. God sees everything. He's omniscient. And so even hidden sins are exposed. Remember Job knew that? Remember Job was willing to go and offer sacrifices for his children in case they had sinned in a hidden way. 
God deals with things in the open. It's not smoke-filled rooms. God is willing to say, okay, well then let's have a conversation about it. I will expose what I'm doing. I will reveal what is just. He never hides what he's doing. John Galvin spent 20 years in prison for starting a fire that killed two brothers. The police detective who interviewed him and coerced a confession out of him through violence John Galvin came up with a story that he was walking by and some friends of his had tried to put a Molotov cocktail into this apartment building and it had failed. It had fallen on the side of the building, so it was gas inside the building. And so he took his cigarette and threw it in the gas and it lit it on fire. And that's what created the fire that killed these two brothers. And he was sentenced to 21 years or sentenced to life in prison for, for the death of these two brothers. And then years later, he's sitting in his prison and he's watching the show Mythbusters where they do these scientific experiments. And Mythbusters tried to see, can you start a fire with a cigarette? And it's actually impossible. They tried thousands of times. It's impossible to do it. Other schools and scientific research, but you can't do it. The, the John Galvin story was an obvious lie and it actually came to exonerate him. And in his exoneration, what came out is this police detective, and there's, like, let's just be honest. They talk about one bad apple spoiling a bunch. The reality is the vast majority of police officers are wonderful servants and sacrificial, but listen, they're also made up of humanity, so there's also wicked ones. You think there's not a wicked trash man, a wicked doctor, a wicked construction worker, a wicked taxi cab driver, wicked preachers? Well, guess what? There's wicked cops, too. It's just made up of humanity. That's not a... It's not a declaration against cops. It's just reality. This guy was. He hid evidence, coerced a confession through physical violence. The judge wasn't just. The prosecuting attorneys hadn't given everything up in disclosure. This guy needed justice. We want guys like John Galvin of justice. And so it feels like for every innocent guy convicted, there's all kinds of guilty people running free. Not in God's economy. He is a perfect just judge. And so, yes, Elihu says God is just because God is God, but he goes on and he talks about what real justice would look like. And this is what it looks like, omniscience and omnipotence and, and fairness. And so then you get to that last big question then in 29 and 30, through 33, though, but what about what I'm experiencing? And so just focusing on that one for sake of time. Verse 29 when he is quiet, who can condemn? That's part of Job's whole beef, right? God, you're silent here. I'm suffering in an unjust way. You're not saying anything. Who can condemn God when he's quiet? When he hides his face, who can behold him? Whether it be a nation or a man. This is really important because Elihu in that moment is helping Job to do what all sufferers need to do. Hear me now, gently, kindly, it's to take your eyes off of you. It ain't about you. There's something much bigger going on. And suffering shrinks your world and it makes it feel like it's just all about you because you're so in pain. It, and and I, I get it. I get it. I don't even condemn it. I don't judge it. I've been there. In high stress situations, God has created a kind of breaker switch even in our brains. I've been reading a book on this and, and people who survive, I may have shared this a few weeks ago, I don't know, because it's not my notes, I sometimes forget, and I don't want to repeat illustrations, but I have private conversations, but they've done all these studies of pilots trying to land planes on an aircraft carrier, and then take off from an aircraft carrier, when pilots take off from an aircraft carrier, these are highly skilled guys, right, they got skills and abilities none of us could ever have, when they take off from an aircraft carrier, they're under such mental stress, they can't even remember their own mom's names, and as they began to study stress, they began to realize when you and I are in high stress situation, God has created a physiological breaker switch in our brain that our brain shuts down and we can't make decisions. Because if we kept trying to make decisions, like literally we would have a meltdown. We become non-functional. So it creates these breaker switches in our brains for us to be able to function. And so the reality is when you're suffering, it's easy for your world to be shrunk and condensed. It's all about you. And at the start, it wasn't that way for Job. But as time has gone on and bad theology and bad friends that have been taking, saying untrue things to him, Job is struggling. He's begun to drift and it's become all about his suffering. And so when he says nations, Elihu is saying whether it's about you, Job, or about the whole world. When God hides his face and you can't totally see what he's doing, why should he do it? That a godless man should not reign, that he should not ensnare the people. For has anyone said to God, I've borne punishment, I will not fend anymore? 
Teach me what I do not see. If I've done iniquity, I will do it no more. You know what he's saying? Sometimes delayed, delayed justice is not justice denied. Sometimes it's justice kind. Job, do you really have a problem with God delaying justice when he uses it to bring people to repentance? Romans 2.4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so as he finishes the chapter based on that, verse 33, will he then make repayment to suit you? Because you reject it. In other words, is God now answering to you, Job, to do it in your way, in your time? Does he now have to bend to suit you? He is using a very poetic, around-the-bush way to say something that I'm about to say, I think, very directly. Feels direct. When in our suffering, our questions have become accusations, at the core, what we've begun to say is, I should be God because I know better. Man, that's scary, folks. It's scary because Job was the most blameless man on the planet, and that's where he went. So who among us would ever claim that we couldn't go there? That'd just be too arrogant, wouldn't it? Be too arrogant. And so I think God is so kind to show this to us. Men of understanding will say to me, verse 34, wise men who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men, for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. What Elihu is saying is not necessarily, I hope Job keeps suffering, but Job, hear me now, this now, now, this, this whole ball's got to keep rolling till the truth is revealed. And he's right, because it's exactly what God does. And so he doesn't just go after the just nature of God. We just have a few minutes, but he then turns to this other com concept of delighting in God. He starts into chapter 35 by presenting this next accusation. Elihu answered, do you think this to be just? Do you say it's my right before God that you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? In other words, what's the point of obeying God? Because you suffer anyway. I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see. And now he begins to unpack why should you really delight in God? The first view is the view of Satan, verses 1 through 4. What's the point? That was Satan's whole claim at the start of the book, that, that Job is a blessing-seeking gold digger. He obeys God to get from God. And God is a manipulative, insecure God who blesses people to buy their love. So you obey God to be happier, to be wealthier. I don't know how to say it because he's just so helpful. He turned the phrase for us. Satan's view is this. God came so that you can have your best life now. That's a satanic perspective. That's a secular perspective that the real meaning in life happens when you're happy. And so God loves you so much, he wants you to be happy. And you know, what's ironic is, is we think in a very narrow, shallow way, and I think this is part of what confuses. If you ask a lot of parents, what do you want for your kids? I just want my kid to be happy. Really? That's all you want? All you want is your child to be happy. What if your child is a kleptomaniac and what makes them happy is stealing? Well, I didn't mean that. Well, you said whatever makes them happy. What if what makes them happy is, is to have a harem of women, never be married? I didn't mean that. What if it makes them happy to be physically violent, to hurt people? What if what makes them happy is to be a drug kingpin? Well, I didn't mean that. Well, then you'd actually don't mean I want them. All I want is for my children to be happy. You have parameters too. My question to you is, are your parameters God's parameters? And if your parameters are God's parameters, then start reframing how you say it and how you think about it and how you pray for it and how you disciple your children. My real goal for my children, get this now, is that they treasure and see and know Jesus. Well, don't you want them to be happy? Guess what? There's no greater joy than in knowing Jesus. Yeah, and all things being equal, you ask me, personal level, yeah, I'd love to see them married and have kids. I want some grandbabies and it's going to be fun, I think. Looks like a lot of hard work. 
What do I want? And Satan's view is this. It's, it's, it's like when you first come to Christ or someone who claims to come to Christ. There's, it's like the person who gets a new job. They were, they were without a job, unemployed for so long. Suddenly they get a new job. Oh, I'm so thankful to have a job. You touch base with them again six months later. Hey, how's that job going? It's fine. It pays the bill. But boy, my boss is a bear. In other words, the happiness has started to wane. The joy that was there at the beginning has started to go away because it hasn't lived up to all the expectations they had. And this is the problem. When you present people the gospel, I dare us to say it the way Jesus says it. Take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself and find life in me. That we come to Jesus because without Jesus, we are going to die and spend eternity in hell. And so Job's questions about whether God obeying God or delighting God is worth it are really at their core satanic. Then, then Elihu points out, well, how would a believer view it? Look at the heavens and see. In other words, God is a lot bigger than you. Behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? If your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? In other words, the things you and I do are not moving him off of his throne. If you're righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? In other words, God is not sitting on his throne saying, oh boy, I really hope Steve obeys. It's going to really make me look bad if he sins. That's not how God is processing through or dealing with things. He's God and he's going to be God who's God long before you and I have arrived on this planet. He's going to be God way into eternity, right? It's forever. And so the believer delights in God. Why? If we're not primarily delighting in God for my best life now, if I'm not primarily delighting in God for, for more stuff, better health, fix my relationships, cure this disease, get me the safety and security I need physically, emotionally, spiritually. Why? We, listen to me, we delight in God because there's no one more delightful. My parents moved houses when I was halfway through my first grade year. Started first grade year, I was at Maiden Choice Elementary, switched over to Edmondson Heights Elementary, showed up at Edmondson Heights Elementary, trying to make friends. All these kids have known each other. It was a blue-collar, white neighborhood, rough neighborhoods. And so all the kids played together. Now I'm the outsider. I show up, and there was one little long, brown-haired girl in first grade. Every boy had a crush on her. Every kid. She was amazing. If you went up and you pulled her pigtail or her ponytail, she would chase you around the playground. If she, if she liked you, she'd chase you. That was the test. Because boys are genius. Provoke her, and if she likes you, she'll chase you. And so it's like week one, I, I get the system, and I pulled the ponytail, and I started running. And you're not running hard, right? Because let's be honest, boys, you, you kind of wanted to get caught. If she caught you, she'd mark you. She'd scratch you on her arm. I feel like this is like some David Attenborough show. It's how it felt, right? Look at the beasts in the wilderness as they chase the girl. There's this whole moment that, that you're like, what are we doing here? And I remember coming home and, and my mom and my dad asking me about school. And I'm like, oh, there's this little girl and we have a crush on her. And I remember them asking, like, well, why? Like they were trying to process as adults, Why? And even as a little boy, I just remember being like, because it's her. Like there's just something intangible, right? Even as a little first grade boy. Why do we delight in God? Because there's no one more delightful. Like Jesus gets after this when he talks about a person selling everything to buy the treasure in the field. Everything. The man selling everything to buy the pearl of great price. We go after God because in our salvation, God opens our eyes that no one is more delightful than him. We are in awe of him. We are like the first time you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you're brought to silence because you're in awe of this moment. A, a gorgeous sunrise or sunset, you're in awe of it because suddenly your eyes are open and you see that you are a sinner, you are wicked, you deserve justice and de judgment and death. He is holy, he is righteous, he loved you, he's chased you, his son died for you and you are moved in that moment to repent and believe. He says, this is the believer's perspective. Why do you delight in God? Not for all the bennies. 
We even get this in our wedding ceremonies when we say, I'll be with you. What? Sickness and in health, richer or poor. Why do we say those phrases? Because we're saying the foundation of our covenant is not about what it gets me. Why do we delight in God? So, because he's delightful. But then there's the view of the wicked. And this is what Elihu confronts. Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself. Your righteousness is the son of man. In other words, the stuff you're doing and saying is about you. This isn't about God anymore. And then he goes on, and, and what he's going to say in these next verses, I'm going to read them in just a moment, but I just want you to know headed into them, is that people, when they experience suffering, cry out to God, but not because they're repentant, but because of what they want. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where's God, my maker, who gives songs in the night? In other words, they don't want relationship. They just want him to give them what they want. James talks about that, right? He says, you receive not because you ask not. And others of you ask amiss that you may consume it on your lusts. That's King James translation. In other words, I turn to God in prayer when I just want to get something from him. I don't walk with God. I don't serve God. I don't obey God. I don't delight in God. I'm not in awe of God. I check my boxes and then bad things happen. And God, okay, are there some boxes I haven't checked? God, I'll read my Bible every day and I'll pray every day and I'll go to church every time that it's open and I'll do all these things. Okay, God, now give me deliverance. Have we not seen people do this? Think back to 9-11. Mass revival, right? Baloney. Trauma happens, and trauma can lead to salvation. Don't, don't miss that. That's true. But so often, wicked people, they just view God as he's the cosmic slot machine. So how many quarters do I have to get in before I pull the handle to get the three cherries and get what I want? That's what he's saying. Elihu's saying, this is the way wicked people do this. So they don't delight in God. When he talks about God, verse 11, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, makes us wiser than the birds of the heaven. There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. He's not giving you answers to this. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him and you are waiting for him. Oh, wait a minute. And now because his anger does not punish and he does not take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. He says, Job, you have drifted to being just like them when you ask that question. You have forgotten why you really delight in God. You are to delight in God because God is delightful. And what you've drifted into is you've said, what's the point of delighting in God if I don't have a happy life? Then Job, you've just become like all these other people. I'll serve God if God gives me what I want. And if he won't give me what I want, then is he really worth serving? So I'm either going to manufacture a new God or I'm not going to follow him at all. Those are the chapters. What do we do with it? We'll be done here in just a minute. How do we steward it well then? First of all, I just want you to know Job gets it. You can jot this down or they're in the printed notes. He gets it. And this is just another confirmation that Elihu's not a bad guy here. God actually quotes what Elihu says in his confrontation to Job. And then Job quotes Elihu and God, listen now, when he begins to repent from these things. He uses their language. I've spoken without what I didn't know. Please forgive me. I've multiplied words without knowledge. Please forgive me. He doesn't quote any of the other friends, doesn't reference any of their friends. God condemns all the other three friends, but he doesn't condemn Elihu. The reality is what Elihu has said, Job desperately needed to hear, and Job took it in. Why? Because Job is actually a righteous man. Righteous people doesn't mean sinless perfection. There was only one of those. His name was Jesus. Job gets it. This tells us Elihu is preaching right, and it tells us that Job needed to hear this truth. But secondarily, I just want to call us to do this, to steward it well. Steward our suffering well. Elihu's appeal to Job in 34 and 35 is how is this affecting people around you? When he ends chapter 34, that's his fear. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. What he is telling Job is that, Job, people are watching you and they're hearing what you're saying and it is perverting people from loving God. Suffering gives you a unique platform as a believer. And I say this with warning that's gracious. We can misuse that platform. 
And when we misuse our platform of suffering, we can damage people around us in significant ways. Our season of suffering, we need to think of it as a stewardship, not as the end of our life, not as just something. You know, in Hebrews 12, when it talks about your suffering uh, because God is chasing and scourging you even, so that's suffering that you even did to deserve, discipline you're getting, or punishment because God's correcting you and it's the nature of life. He says, don't despise it and don't faint under it. And that gives us the poles. To despise it is to say, I'll just grit my teeth and get through it. Job doesn't do that. Job is honest about his questions. But then the other one is don't faint under it. That means don't give up. And Job has begun to faint. How can we steward our suffering? I'll give you one way and we're all done. I'm over time. Here it is. Not original with me, but two words that, or four words that help capture it. Be patient and be praying. Be patient and be praying. There's more to be said. Elihu's not done. He'll turn our heart to it. I want to leave us with this idea. Suffering, stewarding suffering, requires truth affirmations that deal with our questions and our accusations. We delight in God because he's delightful. Not so he gives us a happy life.